want to see the world from a totally different perspective? Ready for provocative conversation, intriguing stories, and inspiration? Then don't touch that dial. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. She'll give you something to talk about all week long. Now, here's Francesca. Hi, everyone. You're tuned in to Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca. And when I say, as I usually do in the next hour, you're going to know a little bit more than you do now. Trust me, you are going to know a little bit more than you do now. So stay with me here. What we're talking about tonight is medical assistance in dying, uh, dubbed as MAID. Uh, but before we get started, a little housekeeping. My web address is talkwithfrancesca.com. And if you miss part of the show, you can always go over to my iTunes page and listen there along with hundreds of other episodes. And um, I'd love it if you would uh, give me a review. This show is sponsored by Antico Forno in the North End, when you'll only accept the absolute best in Italian food. Great service, and it's a really fun setting. Antico Forno is your go-to spot. I know because it also happens to be my favorite. So we're going to dive right in. In 2016, Canada passed legislation that made medical assistance in dying, again, made, dubbed as made, legal across the country. And just merely days later, Dr. Stephanie Green, who was my guest this evening, performed the first assisted death on Vancouver Island, becoming one of the pioneering specialists in MAID in the country, um, embarking on what she says was transformative, challenging, and ultimately fulfilling journey that would teach her uh, just, just as much about how to live as how to die, which I find that very interesting. She's recently published a memoir, This is Assisted Dying, a doctor's story of empowering patients at the end of life. How I found her is there was an article in Psychology Today recently and found it really, really fascinating. I thought you guys would too. So big welcome to you, Dr. Green. Thank you for joining us on Talk with Francesca. Thanks for having me, Francesca. So, you know, it's interesting that you went from working exclusively in maternity and newborn care before changing your focus in 2016 to medical assistance in dying. And so can, can you talk a little bit about that journey? Sure. Well, the change is really a culmination of a whole bunch of different factors all at once. It's not a straight line, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, what I find interesting is that the skills that I needed in maternity became really useful for me at end of life. I mean, for me personally, I've been working in maternity for maybe two decades, and I, I just adored it. I, I really loved my job. What could be better than delivering babies? Mm -hmm. But after a while, there's a physical toll as well. And doing, you know, I was doing 24-hour call shifts and delivering babies and, and treating emergencies. And then it would take me another day or so to recover from that. So I was kind of being pulled by my family back towards cutting back a little bit and being home before my own family, my own children, would grow up and leave the nest. And at the same time, the laws in Canada were beginning to change, and I could see that assisted dying was going to become a reality, and I wondered who would do that work. So there was a number of factors that all came together to make me consider the switch. But as I started doing the work, I was just, just fascinated. You know, when you think about maternity care, you think about, you think about all the uh, the intensity of that time, the emotions that are involved, the family dynamics that are called up. When I'm in a room delivering a baby, you know, I'm supposed to be there as the knowledgeable doctor, the guy to help this 
unfamiliar and a little bit scary time. Sure. But at the same time, once the baby comes out, I'm, I'm supposed to disappear gracefully. And, not, you know, I'm not the most important person in the room at any moment during that birth. <laughs> and the truth is that's the same at end of life, right? It's all the same things. Emotional, intense, one of the most important days of your life. Lots of family dynamics. And I am far from the most important person in the room. So I actually find them quite similar. So, but you you talk a little bit about how you, uh, they are similar, but in a, a different kind of a way that it's the journey of being born, but also the journey of life and the journey of death being sort of almost one and the same. Am I understanding that correctly? Well, I do see them both as transitions. I mean, mm. one is a transition into life. The other is a transition out of life. And I really feel that clinicians have a role uh, a potential role to play when people ask us to be involved in that situation, when they invite us into that really, mm. I mean, almost sacred space, that yes. time with them. There's a role for clinicians to play in both of those transitions. And, and, and because they're both transitions, I, again, I find there's some similarities there. So um, does this work shake you at all, or do you find it rewarding, or, or I don't know, maybe both? <laughs> it's... it's uh, <laughs> It's intense. You know, this yeah. work is, um, yeah. the work is, it, it can be very sad, right? I'm meeting people at the end of their life. Yeah. And um, when, I, when I leave a patient after helping them, there's no doubt that I'm sad that somebody's sure. life has ended. Right. But at the same time, I really feel like people have asked me for this. I, I, I really see this as facilitating someone's dying wish. Right, and so I'm I'm facilitating this dying wish for people, and when I'm able to do that, when I'm able to give them that, when I'm able to empower them to make this choice and to and to have this happen because that's what they desperately want, I don't feel badly about my work. I, I leave that that moment, and I feel like I've done something good for this person that they've asked me to do. So I I actually find the work quite rewarding and very very meaningful, really more than anything. Well, no doubt about that, but speaking to those pleading for help or administ- administering uh, medications that cause death, what, what, what's mm. that, what is that like for you? It is, I, I, re- I honestly think the best word I can use is, uh, it's, it's very privileged work. Yeah. It's, it's um, you know, the first time I did this, obviously I was scared. I didn't know what it would be like. I didn't know what I would feel like. I didn't know how I'd feel afterwards. I was, I was a little bit concerned, but I was really, um, really taken. I was overwhelmed, actually, by, the, uh, by the, the request of the patient and the family and the, the gratitude they had for my being able to help them with this. And I, I, um, I felt very privileged to be involved in those final minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very private event. It was just the family and very, you know, paradoxically, very beautiful, you know, very sad, mm-hmm. and at the same time, so loving and so supportive and so beautiful. I was quite riveted with what I was watching happening in front of me, and I felt um, like I was helping. So I felt it was a very privileged place to be with them. How do you view your understanding of care? You know, they always say, you know, a doctor first should do no harm, and I don't... My, I guess what I'm asking is, what is obviously you do not consider it doing harm. Um, so, but I mean, but I don't know that that you or I, you know, if we agree on that necessarily, that other people would agree as well. Some I mean, many, many, many years ago, I actually had um, 
two, this was, I was at, not even at this radio station. Um, I'm talking maybe 10 years ago. I, do you know who Dr. Marsha Angel is? I don't. I'm sorry. Okay, that's okay. So I had her who was a, a doctor, but whose father had taken a, a gun to his head and taken his life. He was sick and, and uh, you know, she put it, he was in control mm-hmm. because that's, you know, he was, um, he lived this, he died the same way he lived. He wasn't going to be out of control and he did what he mm-hmm. wanted to do. And yet then I had another doctor right by her side at the station as well, who was a, a doctor from Mass General Hospital, an oncologist, and who was absolutely against it and you never know and, you know, it, First, you do so. I mean, I know there are opposing views, and mm-hmm. I mean, I obviously, you know, it's, it's sort of a no-brainer um, what your understanding of care is and the mission of medicine. But maybe you could just expound on that for our listeners a little bit. Sure. Well, I I really think that for those of us who go into medicine, I think we all say different things at our medical school interviews and try to sound creative and, mm. and unique. But yeah. the truth is. I really think the vast majority of people go into medicine in order to help people, or at least I'd like to think that, and I, I do really believe that. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I've spent most of my career, you know, before I did assisted dying as a family doctor, and I've seen people at all walks of life. We talk about, you know, we, we kind of joke and we call it from cradle to grave, family medicine right. from, you know, delivering babies through, through, you know, infancy, childhood, adolescent, you know, young adult, middle age crisis you know, aging, end of life, we, we kind of see it all. And people come to us not so much to celebrate life, but they come to us, you know, at very vulnerable times in their life. Right. Life throws them twists and turns and roller coasters, and they, they usually come to us with some of their biggest problems. And so, you know, our role is to try to diagnose the problem, try to treat the problem, try to cure the problem. But in truth, those of us in medicine know that that's not the vast majority of what we do. I mean, certainly not in family medicine. We'd like to think so, but we mm-hmm. don't. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, there's even an expression, you know, we, we uh, how does it go, we, we, um, we cure sometimes, we care often, and we comfort always. That's, that's the role of a physician. That's, we, we help people. And so I think that we could all agree that death and dying are part of life. I mean, we all say that, mm-hmm. but we don't really want to talk about it. And the truth is that we, if we recognize that, if we respect that death and dying are an inevitable part of every life, then there's very much a role for clinicians to be involved in that, um, just like we are in every other stage of life. And, 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 and we are there to, to, to cure sometimes, to care often, and to comfort always. A lot of what we do is we hold people's hands when we can no longer offer them That's right. that that That's cure. Right. Yeah. And, you know, maybe we've lost sight. This sounds silly, but maybe we've lost a little bit of sight that we we are mortal. We, we all know. Yeah. We are going to die. That's kind of happened to every human being that's ever existed. And so I don't mean to sound flippant, but no. I think to prepare for that, to talk about it, to prepare for it, to to at some point respect that and, and have a little sense of control over how that's going to go, it's a very human thing to do, mm-hmm. and there's very much a role of clinicians in that, Right, I think. I think so, too. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm speaking with Dr. Stephanie Green, and we are discussing medical assistance in dying, um, dubbed as MAID. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, Dr. Green, I'd like to start to talk a little bit about the patients, whether they, you know, 
have second thoughts and, you know, just a whole bunch of questions around that and and talk about them. So listeners, stay with us here. Don't go anywhere. Lots more to talk about. This is This is Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca Luca. We'll talk more in just a bit on 95.9 WATD. Tides is beachside dining at its best all year round. Located at the end of the Nahant Causeway, directly on Nahant Beach, the ocean views from the dining room and the pub can't be beat. Tide specializes in casual dining with food that's delicious, not pretentious. On a warm day, enjoy a frosty pint at their bar or the sun-drenched deck on Nahant Beach. Or enjoy an incredible meal in their dining room anytime. Tides guarantees you great atmosphere with superior service. The menu at Tides is full of fresh high-quality seafood, prime rib, chicken, pasta, and pizza that everyone will love. Check out the drink menu at Tides for fun cocktails, 30 ice-cold beers on tap, and their well-rounded wine list with state-of-the-art tap wines. Tides is unbeatable anytime, summer or winter, lunch or dinner, rain or shine. Visit TidesNahan.com. A whole new house is a lot right now. Redesigning your current home could be just what you're looking for. Consult with interior designer Grace Beltrame. If you're just moving in or would like to get the most out of where you've been, Grace Beltrame can make any house a home or your current home even homier. Find the best color scheme for any room. Bring out the brilliance every room was meant for with a lighting and floor plan. Grace Beltrame is also a professional organizer. Find out what you've been missing in the kitchen and make your closet space pop with organizational elegance. You know those shows where someone rehabilitates a home they just bought? Your project is just an after picture waiting to happen. It doesn't have to belong to anybody but you. Call Grace Beltrame today at 508-493-8604. 508-493-8604. And bring out the beauty in your home. I'm Francesca Luca, and you're listening to Talk with Francesca on 95.9 WATD. We are back. And I'd like to uh, reintroduce my guest, Dr. Stephanie Green. Uh, she founded the Canadian Association of Made Assessors and Providers, which now has over 400 members nationwide. Uh, welcome back, Dr. Green. Thank you. So I'd like to talk a little about the, the actual uh, patient. First, I'd like to start with who is the most likely candidate? Yeah, so um, if, if we look at our data, you know, I, we can look at data from different jurisdictions where this is allowed, but it, it's pretty much the same everywhere. The most common, uh, the, most, the, the average age of the person who asks for assisted dying in Canada anyways is 75. It's usually someone in their 70s if you look at different jurisdictions. Wow. The most common underlying condition that people ask for help um, they are overwhelmingly people with cancer. So in our country, it's just under 70%. Wow. That's pretty consistent in yep. the States and in Europe. Um, so um, and what we're also seeing, we don't collect a lot of this data yet, but we are seeing uh, certainly from the different states where this is allowed and in other jurisdictions and anecdotally in Canada, we are seeing that those who step forward tend to be uh, tend to be white, tend to be of a higher socioeconomic class, tend to be a little bit higher educated. Um, so that's that's really who's stepping forward, at least right now. Mm-hmm. Do do um, patients ever have second thoughts? 
I think it's a good question. I so there's a short answer and a long answer. I, I would say that nobody comes to this decision lightly. By the time people come and see me and make mm-hmm. this request, right. they've been thinking about this for a long time, weeks, mm-hmm. months, often years. Mm-hmm. So this is a well thought out process. It's not it's not really possible to have an kind of a an instinctual reflexive, oh, I think I'll call Dr. Green and have an assisted death tomorrow. That doesn't happen. That's mm-hmm. not possible. Right. So, so I, I would preface it by that. Having said that, I have done this uh, uh, very frequently, an odd number of times, because this is 90% of my work. And I have to tell you, in all of the cases that I've done, I've only had one time when a person said to me, I don't think I want to do this today. Um, I have had people call me up a couple days before their scheduled event and say to me, I think I want to delay this for a couple of weeks. I've I've seen that a very small handful of times, and mostly because people have come to say goodbye to them. Family has come to visit. They're feeling rather good about that. They're having Mm -hmm. a a good time, you know, interacting. Mm -hmm. Um, But each of those people have called me back within 48 hours to reschedule within days because they had forgotten how how ill they were and how, how unwell they felt and they, they needed to move ahead. I've just had the one uh, who's changed their mind, and that person was actually unwell that day, to be perfectly honest. That said, I, I would just add, actually, I would say if you look at all the data, though, nationwide, and, and if you look in Oregon, where we have really good right. data, you'll see the right. same thing. Only 65% of the people who get a prescription in Oregon will actually go ahead and take their medication to self-administer their assisted death. You know, about one-third of people don't follow through. And in Canada, about one-third of people who apply for an assisted death actually don't receive one for a number of reasons. Right. They, might have, they, may, they might die while they're waiting. They might have changed their mind, though it's very, very uncommon. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they might... Um, they might have lost the ability to make this decision, you know, lost their capacity to make right. this kind of choice. There's lots of different reasons why that can happen. So you don't ever feel concerned that the patient isn't sure they're actually going to a more settled place? I, I've never had that experience, no, because part of, I mean, part of our law is that uh, in Canada we actually allow clinicians to administer the medication, which is something that's not available in the United States. Right. And so as part of our law, we actually need to seek consent as the patient requests when we assess them, and then immediately prior to administering medication, we need to, again, get the consent of the patient. Like, eyeball to eyeball, are you sure this is what you want, Mr. Smith? Have you, you know, did you have second thoughts last night? We could delay this longer. Is this what you wish? Like, that kind of conversation happens. And so I've, you know, I, I've, never, I've never not felt the patient was unsettled. In fact, the patient's Find, I, I find they're very much settled. You'll notice at the back of my book, there's a listing. I've actually listed, it's almost like a poem, a list of last words. And, and patients are very much at peace and ready to move forward. It's the families and the loved ones who've gathered that day who are really grieving and having a much harder time at the day of the death, I find. It's much harder for them than it is for the patient. Patients settled, absolutely at peace, ready to make this decision. The loved ones, however, are still grappling with the reality. What about someone who has a mental health disorder? Um, do, does that give? Does that preclude a patient from giving consent? Well, yes and no. So, um, somebody who who gives consent to this decision, like many other decisions, needs to have what we call the capacity to make this decision. So, they need to have a, a full understanding of what's wrong with them. They need to have a really full understanding of what their treatment options are. 
So what what they could do instead, the pros and cons of those treatment options. What you know, they need to appreciate what their decision will mean that they'll die, and that's irreversible. I mean, that sounds silly, but people need to understand that, mm-hmm. and that it will affect those around them as well. And knowing all of that information, they need to kind of articulate a request to die. So if someone has a mental health disorder, we presume that they have capacity to make their own healthcare decisions. But the truth is, sometimes that's not true. And so if there's any sense that their mental health disorder or their state of mental health is clouding their capacity to make this decision, then they can't move forward. Having said that, many people with mental health disorders have full capacity to make their own health care decisions. So it's a case-by-case decision that has to be looked at. There's a very rigorous set of criteria that need to be met. Um, and so, so it depends is the answer. If they have capacity to make this kind of decision, they potentially could move forward. And if they are, do not have that capacity, then they, they absolutely can't. So it depends. So, but, but what I'm curious about is, so we, is this uh, someone who wants to do this that has a um, mental um, illness, yes. if, are we talking about they want to do it because they have a mental illness and because they have depression and chronic pain or, or hopelessness, or is it because they have something else and mental illness is just something else that on top of that? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah, so no, it's, a, it's a good question, yeah. So, so there's sometimes, sometimes patients have mental health as their, what we call the sole underlying reason for right. asking for MAID yes. and versus someone who has you know, a comorbid disease. They have mental health and they happen to have another physical illness. Exactly. So there's right. a distinction. Right. So there are subtle differences between jurisdictions, between states, between countries. So they, they, they're a little bit different in, in each. But I can tell you what is kind of standard where, where I work, it's certainly if someone has a mental health disorder and a physical illness, um, as long as their mental uh, state is clear and they have capacity, the fact that they have a pancreatic cancer, you know, they can apply for an assisted death, and as long as they can meet all of the criteria that are required, mm-hmm. they could move ahead. If somebody comes forward and only has a mental health disorder, let's say they right. have uh, severe depression that's been treatment resistant over decades, and they'd right. like to end their life because right. of that. Right. Um, right now in Canada, they are actually excluded from accessing medical assistance and dying if that's their only underlying oh, illness. Okay. Um, but we are going to be allowing that, removing that um, exclusion in March of 2023, and we're currently studying how best to assess and approach these patients and safeguard what could be an especially vulnerable group right. of patients. Right, exactly. Uh, so we're grappling with that right now, yeah. There are jurisdictions in the world where that's allowed in Europe, but it's not currently allowed anywhere in North America. Huh. How do you tell a patient, yeah. and their loved ones for that matter, despite their obvious suffering, that the law requires you to turn them away, resigning them uh, to a fate that you know that you know yeah. they desperately don't want, which is to live, let's say, in depression. I mean, there are people, like you said, I mean, who have been really resistant to treatment. Maybe they've even gone as far as as um, you know, shock treatments and medications and years of therapy, and they're just they're miserable. Mm-hmm. They're just miserable, and they just want to die, and they mean it. Um, of course, I don't know. I guess, and I I guess my question in that case is that would be death by suicide themselves, right? So, I mean, if they really wanted to do it, they they could do it. Yeah, I think I think what you've come across is, is, is part of my answer, which is that just because someone 
just because I feel for someone, because I understand their suffering, because I, I maybe even understand their plea, doesn't mean that I can help them, right? There's still a very rigorous um, set of safeguards and eligibility criteria that must be met by every single patient. So mm-hmm. if they don't meet, like, like, I might feel badly, but the truth is I'm not going to go to jail, right? I, I'm going to always work within the law. And right. the law is what it is. And people can argue that it's too loose or it's too strict. And I'm sure those debates will go on for decades. But, mm-hmm. you know, as a clinician, it's my job to work, you know, to the best and the highest of medical standards and always, always within the law. So your question, how do I... What is it like to tell someone they're ineligible for this care? I have to tell you it's the hardest part of my job. It's the worst thing that I do. People will only come to me when they feel they are suffering intolerably and can no longer live or that they're not even living, that they can't exist the way they are. So they come to me asking for help. And if I need to tell them that they they simply don't qualify for whatever reason that is, and it may have nothing to do with their mental state, it may do something else, then I, I need to explain to them, that the law just doesn't allow for it, and I'm, you know, I try to validate their their experience and their suffering, and I try to my very best to find them other resources that might help reduce that suffering in any way that we can come up with and imagine. Mm-hmm. But I'm not always able to do that. I'm not always successful in that, and people have been very understanding, but you know, they they go away unhappy, and you know, I, I feel terrible when that happens. Yeah. So. Would you would you say there's a certain personality type? I mean, obviously these are brave, assured souls. You know, yeah. when, you know, when faced with this intolerable suffering, and you know their imminent mortality seeks something different in their lives. But you know, is it? Do you feel that there's some you know certain personality traits or uh, that would make someone more inclined to do that than or ask for this help? rather than another person. Yeah. I, well, I certainly th- thought so in the beginning, and, and, I, and that was born true. I mean, certainly the people who stepped forward in the first year that our law became uh, a reality, these were very, very independent-minded, quite opinionated, assured people mm-hmm. who knew what they wanted, mm-hmm. um, had often lived lives that reflected that, you know, quite successful and kind of were CEO types, you know, types that were used to making decisions and having some yep. control. Yeah. Um, uh, so we, we did see a lot of that, and I still continue to see a fair bit of that. But as the, as the care has become more available, as, as people are more aware that this is an option, you know, we're seeing this filter into many more types of uh, situations and, and, and have tried pretty hard to allow access not just to a very elite group of people, but to make sure that this is, I mean, I, I work in a universal healthcare system, so this is supposed to be available to anyone and everyone if they meet the criteria. So, so you know, I, I help people from all walks of life um, in all kinds of situations, and certainly people who get cancer and, and, and reach end of life are not all from one sector of society. So, you know, I think I think we're seeing that change. But yes, people, it is a very courageous decision to make, and you have to be pretty determined to to kind of get through the system. Uh, you know, to do the paperwork, to find out what's involved, to to get a clinician involved, and to be so assured that this is what you want. This isn't an easy decision, and most people I meet don't tell me I want to die. Most people tell me I want very much to live, but I know I don't have a choice anymore. That's, that's really what I hear, right? I, you know, I want to live, but I can't live like this anymore. This right. is not living for me. I've lost anything that brought joy or meaning to my life. I cannot function as the spouse or the father or the sibling that I once was. I'm no longer 
I'm no longer functional. You know, I, I don't have a choice. I see my end of life coming. Right. I just don't, you know, I want to avoid the last few weeks or the decline that I know is in front of me. That's right. the kind of thing that I hear from patients. Well, we do need to take another short break, Dr. Green, but uh, which this leads me, though, to sort of, um, you know, piggyback on what you're saying here. I'm curious about advanced requests, you know, such mm-hmm. as when X, Y, and Z happens, then I want medical assistance in dying. So when we come back, listeners, we will talk about that. Stay with us here. I appreciate you hanging out with me. More talk on the way here on 95.9 WATD. You need help around the house. You need a handyman. How do you find just the one you're looking for? Go to locally owned and operated handymanconnection.com. Handyman Connection puts you in touch with one of their carefully screened and background checked craftsmen. You get the best help around for maintenance, installation, and remodeling services, carpentry, tiling, and flooring, and assistance with aging in place upgrades to your home. Handyman Connection also provides you with free in-home estimates and a one-year written warranty on labor from one of their experienced professionals. Call 781-829-3030 or visit handymanconnection.com. Your connection to quality craftsmen on the South Shore. One call, one connection. Plan a wonderful evening in Boston's North End, highlighted by one of the neighborhood's best-kept secrets, Antico Forno. Renowned as one of the world's most authentic Italian restaurants, Antico Forno provides you with an unforgettable dining experience featuring world-class traditional Italian dishes cooked in their beautiful brick oven. Outdoor dining is now available, too. Whether seated inside or enjoying an evening under the stars, when you eat at Antico Forno, you feel like part of the family. Antico Forno is open seven days a week. See their menu and make your reservation online at AnticoFornoBoston.com. You're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca Luca. The talk continues on 95.9 WATD. All right. Welcome back. I am talking to Dr. Stephanie Green, and our topic tonight is medical assistance in dying, of which she is on, in the front line. So welcome back, Dr. Green. Good to be here. So um, before the break, I had asked you about advanced requests, such as when XYZ happens, I want medical assisted uh, assistance in dying, and I'm curious whether people have, are, are allowed to do that. Right. So this is a this is a question I get asked a lot, and people are really curious about this. So yeah. it's a two part answer. Um, so first and foremost, if someone is diagnosed with an illness and but they're still functioning, and they say, "Look, you know," often we talk about dementia. Someone gets a diagnosis mm. of Alzheimer's, oh. and they say, "Wow, I know what's coming. I saw that in my." You know, my family member, it's not what I want. Yep. When A and B and C are true, I would prefer to have an assisted death. That's an advanced request. Yep. And to be clear, that is not legal anywhere in North America that I'm aware of. Uh, it's just not. Um, and interestingly, if you look at the national polls, that is the thing that most people want to talk about and to make legal. And in Canada, where we've had assisted dying for six years now, it is the number one topic that people want, that the Canadian public wants to see addressed because it hasn't been. Um, because, you know, we know there's a tsunami of dementia and certain oh, illnesses exactly. coming our way. Right. However, 
if you'll allow me, a very short story. We yes. do have something a little bit different, but helpful. So uh, there, a few years ago, there was a woman named Audrey Parker in Nova Scotia, a 50-something-year-old woman who had unfortunately been diagnosed with breast cancer, and she fought valiantly for a long time to treat that disease, but it did overwhelm her. And at some point, she realized she was nearing her end of life, and she requested an assisted death. And we had a law at the time, you know, it had been instituted already, so she was allowed to do that. She applied for assisted dying, uh, and she was found eligible by two clinicians, which is necessary. And uh, she uh, wanted, she was at the point where she was going to set her date. And she very much, Audrey was a woman who was very outgoing and very much wanted to live through one more Christmas. She loved Christmas. It was her favorite time of year. Um, And so she wanted to set her date to die in January of that year. And that was the plan. But uh, a couple months before that, she was told by her clinicians that her disease had spread to the lining of her brain. And uh, very unfortunately, they weren't sure that she would be able to maintain her decision-making capacity, like, that long, Mm -hmm. that she would have to make a decision to either have an assisted death sooner, knowing she was in control, or, you know, take the risk, live through Christmas, but, you know, if she lost the ability to make her decision or to give consent, then she couldn't have an assisted death, and she would die with a supported palliative (sighs) care death, you know, in the new year. Mm -hmm. And she felt that was a very cruel choice. She didn't feel that was fair. She'd already been through the system. She'd been through every hoop. She'd filled out every piece of paper. She was found eligible. Why couldn't she say now, today, that she wanted to die on January 4th, giving permission now? And the law simply didn't allow for that. You know, you have to give consent at the moment of. So she she kind of kick-started a national debate about this issue and really captured people's uh, opinions and, and attention because it seemed grossly unfair. Um, she, un- for better or for worse, uh, Audrey chose to die in November, knowing she had full control. So she did die before oh. Christmas. Um, and, and the conversation continued because it was felt to be very cruel. Our, our government actually was changing, amending our law on assisted dying for a different reason I won't have to go into right now. And at the same time, they heard this feedback from the public, from the providers, from a lot of people. And they actually changed the law to allow for that very situation uh, if somebody, uh, you know, already meets all the criteria and has already been deemed eligible for an assisted death and gives permission, and let's say they set their date for next Thursday at 3, then they can write, they can enter an agreement and say, look, if I lose my decision-making capacity between now and next Thursday at 3, you still have permission to go ahead and help me, even if I can't give you consent on that day. And that is now legal in Canada. It's called a waiver of final consent. And we can now do that. So for a very specific group of patients, you know, who already met all the criteria, we're allowed to do that kind of form. It's it's a little bit of an advanced consent. Mm -hmm. Um, But but what you were asking about, what people really want to hear about, the advanced request for some future time that you've not yet met criteria for, that is not yet legal. No. Are there ever uh, cases that just hit home? Yes, certainly there are, and I I talk about some of them in the book. Um, You know, it's impossible for me to not project myself or my family or my own personal relationships into the the situations that I see. I think that probably many clinicians do that. I know for myself, when I leave a patient, you know, I, I often think about what would I do, what would I want, who would I want standing next to me in that situation, you know, what would I want said, what would I want to say. So, it's you know, it, it, I have a lot of reflection on that. And so some sometimes sometimes it just hits a little too close to home. You know, I, I'm human as well, course, and, you know, you, you can't stay 
completely compartmentalized. So when I see situations that remind me of myself, but, you know, a woman my age who has children my, you know, my children's age or, you know, something about their spouse reminds me of my spouse, that kind of situation is, of is much harder for me to, um, to stay even keeled in because I, I can't help but imagine what that would be like. Um, and that, that's, that's difficult, for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Do you think that there's a stigma attached, uh, you know, against doctors who perform assisted dying? So I think there's probably pockets of people who are outspoken against clinicians that do this work. Um, I have found that where I live and work, that has not been the case. Um, I expected that. Uh, I'm not trying to jinx it. Um, But but I have to tell you, uh, the population where I live and work has absolutely embraced this, uh, this, this possibility, this option. They are incredibly grateful to know that it's available. Um, I have been a little bit overwhelmed with the gratitude of patients and families, much more than I expected. Uh, and so I feel quite supported in this work. I was a little bit shy at first to talk about, you know, you don't walk into a cocktail party and someone says, hey, what do you do for a living? You know, you got to be a little bit measured in how you answer. Right. But these days when people ask me what I do, I don't hold back because I find people are interested, they're curious, they want to know more about it, and point Seven times out of ten, they tell me how grateful they are for people who do who who do this work. So I, I, there will always be, a, you know, a vocal minority. There will always be opponents, and I, I respect that mm-hmm. as I, long as the discourse is respectful. Right. Um, and that's fine. Uh, yes. But I have been surprised at how supported I've been. Yeah, I, I you know, and I um, hear you, but I, I just don't think it's actually cocktail party conversation. That's got to be a little strange. <laughs> <laughs> that's got to be a little strange. Oh, you know. You know it's, over there, you know, this woman, she's, you know, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it can be a little odd, for sure. But um, but there's always someone who, who who kind of bends down and whispers a question. You know, when I talk about what I do at a party, that immediately someone will tell me about a, a death from their family, an experience that they've had. They will immediately launch into a story almost every time. And I, you know, I, I'm amazed. People want to talk about the issues. They really, really do. It's one of the reasons I wrote this book was to contribute to the conversation that I think we need to have. Whether you agree with assisted dying or not is, is not the important part. What is important is that we talk about what's important to ourselves and our loved ones, and we, t- we prepare for what we could be facing so that our loved ones know what our thoughts are about that. You know, I want to contribute to that conversation. I want to, to kickstart that conversation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and what about your family? How does your family feel about you doing this? I've had uh, really, really great support from my husband and from my children. Both are now grown. They've always understood why I'm doing this and why I feel it's important to do it and, and to be not, not hidden. I think it's important that this isn't hidden behind closed doors or, or done quietly in whispers. This is where I live. This is, this is free, legal, available, covered medical care. So like any other medical care this needs to be discussed and held to high standards and uh and, and out in the open my, my family's been very understanding of my work and i am quite grateful for that have you ever run into a family um you know that that you once assisted i have um and what's that like i have it's uh i'll tell you the first time that happened i, I was in a grocery store um I was literally standing next to the vegetables and uh, talking to a neighbor who I'd run into, and 
literally, I, I looked up and I, I, at the corner of my eye, I saw a woman quite, you know, maybe 30, 40 feet away from me over by the apples uh, who was looking at me. And I really, I recognized her as the daughter of somebody I had helped uh, a month before. And she was looking at me as well quite intently. And you have to remember that I, I did maternity care for most of my career. So I'm very familiar with running into old patients and families right, in the mall. And, right. and, and those stories, you know, people are excited to see me and they come up and they hug me and we talk about the baby. And it's a very positive experience. I didn't know what this would be like to right. run into a family member right. someone that I helped exactly. to die. I was quite a little concerned. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw her and I wasn't sure what I should do. I, I knew that I wasn't going to recognize her. If she would come to me, I would talk to her. I wasn't going to go talk to her. Right. So I, I just looked and she, she came across the 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 space and she came straight over to me and did not speak a word she just came straight up to me and as she got closer and closer and i got a little bit more nervous she just opened her arms and gave me the tightest bear hug um and did not let go Aww. like you know those hugs that last a minute or so yeah and she just she just did that and i so we stood there in the grocery store hugging she just pulled back and looked at me with a big smile on her face the only two words she said to me were thank you and Aww. she walked away that was it Oh. And and so I you know I'm I I was astounded at that and grateful and um, I was going to ask you yeah moved. how did it make you feel Oh uh, I was so touched I was so so touched by that um, I I felt again I felt like my work was 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 meaningful to to the family and that it was received the way that it was intended um I felt good, you know, I felt good about that. You know, I, it's not all sunshine and roses. I, I really mean that these stories are true, and this is what happens to me. But, you know, as I, as I mentioned in the, in the book, there are families that are not so supportive. You know, there are families that are angry. There are families that that uh, confront me. Um, really? Not always. Any, yeah, sure, you know, with a, not everyone is supportive. Um, and some people are quite outspoken about it. So... You know, part of my job is to try to find the proper closure, to try to bring people together for respectful discussion, to understand each other's point of view, to have at least get to a place where we can respectfully disagree with each other. That's kind of my goal uh, in those situations. And I'm I'm happy to say they're far and few between, but they do exist. Mm -hmm. And most of the time we can get there. You know, the patients explain what they want and why they want it. And coming from them is much more powerful than coming from me. Uh, but it's not always attainable, and uh, sometimes that's that's very difficult when that happens. The decision to choose to live or die when we come back. Stay with us here. This is life, don't miss it, don't miss it. I'm Francesca Luca, and you're listening to Talk with Francesca on 95.9 WATD. Who doesn't go to the hair salon to liven up their looks? Though sometimes you look worse on the way out than you did walking in. You can expect something different at Hair Design Fationa. With a super modern feel that can hardly be mistaken for suburban, a full-service hair salon, they offer cuts, color, highlighting, and formal design. Fationa is originally from Europe where she owned her own salon. With an impressive following, she won't disappoint. I know because I can tell you from my own experience, I felt transformed and you will too. So if you're looking to turn a few heads, call Fationa today at 781-964-3770. Conveniently located at 834 Washington Street in Braintree or visit her on Facebook. That number again is 781-964-3770. Call today, you'll be thrilled. I know you will. 
Need a reliable place for your pet? Does your dog crave extra stimulation instead of social isolation? Sign up for Doggy Daycare at the Dog's Den in Pembroke. With two separate yards and plenty of supervision, your dog will have a ball and tug-of-war toys and plenty of new friends. The Dog's Den also specializes in grooming. Each groomer at the Dog's Den has decades of experience and will leave your furry friend refreshed and ready for their next adventure. Schedule your grooming or daycare today at thedogsdengrooming.com. Looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you might just want to venture out to Boston this weekend and dine at Terramia Ristorante, a true gem among all those rhinestones in Boston's North End. This cozy trattoria with stucco walls and beam ceiling specializes in creative interpretations of Italian classics. Like the cuisine here, the atmosphere is elegant, yet understated. Since opening in 1993, Terramia Ristorante has aimed to convince diners that there's always more to Italian food than just red sauce. Over the years, the innovative and beloved restaurant has done a great deal of convincing. And best of all, it's reasonably priced. The best-kept secret is worth the trip. Call 617-523-3112. That's 617-523-3112. Or visit terramiaristorante.com. for more talk with Francesca on 95.9 WATD. And we are back, and I am speaking with Dr. Stephanie Green, the decision to choose to live or to die. Dr. Green, do you ever think it's not the right choice for someone? Or do you ever try to talk them out of it? I don't think it's my place to talk them into it, and I don't think it's my place to talk them out of it. This uh, law is a recognition that it's... Uh, it's really up to the patient. It's up to the people to decide what is important for them and uh, to, uh, to kind of try to respect that. Uh, mm-hmm. My job is to make sure that people meet the criteria of the law, both medically and legally. Right. Um, and uh, it, I, I don't feel it's my place. I, I really, you know, I feel very strongly <clears throat> that physicians can have any personal opinions they want about anything and that what they do in their home is their business. But you need to leave some of that personal right. uh, faith and moral compass at home. When you cross right. your threshold into your office, you need to act professionally and right. put the patient front and center. Well, so. that's right. And I suppose that, I, I guess, and, uh, thinking about afterwards, after asking the question, that if they're at the point where they are allowed to, to do this, then they, they meet the criteria, then it isn't up to you to say uh, yeah. that you don't think it's the right choice. But do you yeah. ever privately think it's not the right choice? Well, I mean, there are times when people choose to do this earlier than I, you know, I'm surprised that they want to do it a little bit earlier than I thought that would make most sense for most people. And, you know, I certainly, it's not just that they say they want to. Part of my role is also to make sure they've explored other options, that they're aware of other options, that they've been offered other options. So, you know, I do offer other choices to people. I make sure every, you know, everybody needs to be aware of palliative care and things. There, you know, I, 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 I can't say I've ever gone home and thought, man, you know, that, that shouldn't have happened. I, you know, if yeah. I feel that way, if I truly feel that way, then I, you know, I, I won't provide the care. There's nothing compelling me to provide this care if I truly feel uncomfortable with, even if someone, even if I know they meet all the criteria and it's legal, that doesn't mean I have to help them, right? No one's, no one's forced to do this work right. uh, if they don't want to, and no one's forced to follow through on it just because someone's eligible. So, right. Right. you know, I, I, I don't put myself in that position. I respect my own boundaries as well. Right. 
Um, I know all of all your experiences in Canada. Um, my understanding is that you're also well-versed in the laws across the U.S. governing the practice. Um, yes. What are some of the key differences between laws in our two countries? Well, I think um, there's a few things that are most that stand out. So in the United States, in every state where this is allowed, the patient does need to be terminal. They need to have a terminal illness that's defined as someone who's dying within six months. They need clinicians to, to state that outright. Um, that is a big difference. In, in Canada, the law does not require a terminal illness. It doesn't require a certain time frame to be close to death or having imminent death. So that is probably one of the largest differences. That allows, anyways, there's reasons why I think there might be some good flexibility in that. Clinicians aren't very good at predicting when people will die. Notoriously bad at it, and we know we're bad at it, and we have evidence we're bad at it. So trying to, you know, require people to be dying within six months is is a difficult it's a difficult thing to do, and I, I understand why the American laws require that, but I think it's, it's challenging. The other thing that I think is a, a significant difference is that in the U.S., um, only uh, self-administered assisted dying is allowed right. anywhere this is allowed. So you, the patient does need to administer the medications themselves, which Ugh. primarily is a, is a drink. Right. Um, you know, there's some creative solutions in some states about the wording of the legislation. So sometimes it says you need to ingest the medication, and that really means you can use the gastrointestinal tract in any way. So if you have a feeding tube, you might be able to press a plunger. You know, things like details like that can happen. But generally speaking, it needs to be administered by the patient. Um, In Canada, actually, the clinicians are allowed to administer the medication. And in fact, 99.9% of all cases of assisted death in Canada have been clinician administered and well over 95% in you know the Netherlands and Belgium the same it's been clinician administered where it's allowed and you might wonder why that is um, and i think i do you know in the us yeah i, yeah, I, yeah. I think in the us it's prime i would think that it's primarily self administered because you kind of want to prove and kind of force the proof that the patient is committed to the fact that you know they would be willing to do it themselves but the truth is that that unfairly discriminates against a lot of people, especially those who are disabled right. or disabled either before their illness or disabled due to their illness. I mean, you know, people are relatively familiar with Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS, yes. myotrophic yes. sclerosis. You know, the debilitating, degenerative, lethal, horrible illness that kind of robs patients of their ability to control their muscles and their body. Um, and for many patients, by the time they're, they're hitting that magic, oh, six months left to live, which is required in the States, right. you know, they've, they've likely lost the ability to swallow. And they've certainly lo- most commonly lost the ability to, to hit a plunger. So, you know, you're, you're, you're not allowing certain patients to access this care when they're at their most vulnerable and most needy. And so I think there's some argument, there's some room for debate about those restrictions. Well, I also um, just am curious, yeah. I just, I, you know, if I could just interject here for a second, that it, it to me, I don't know, I, I, I would think that it might be a little bit more comforting to have somebody there with you, you know, a professional doing it. You know, there yeah. just seems, uh, I don't know, I, I really don't know, but it just, to me, just sort of intuitively, it would just 
feel like it would be, I don't know, easier is the right word because I don't think there's anything easy about it more at all. But, but more comfortable, yeah. yeah. And and that you have somebody who's there reassuring you that you know is is you know a, a professional and a doctor, a caretaker, a caretaker. That's what I want to say, a caretaker. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that. really true. And and you know, very yeah. unfortunately, there are there are complication rates which are are small, but mm-hmm. they exist and they are much more significant in a self-administered event than in a clinician-administered event. Um, and so there's a real risk, small that it is, there's a real risk of failure uh, in a completely self-administered event with no, with no professional there with you. And that's, you know, that's a catastrophe as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't think that should be taken lightly. I think, you know, if someone, you know, it's kind of, I don't mean to shock, but, you know, if somebody tries to administer the medication, let's say they're trying to drink the drink that's going to make them fall asleep and then die, if they fall asleep before they finish the drink, they maybe only have half of it, well, they might not follow all the way through it. They might become unconscious for several hours, you know, but then wake up, Ugh. right? I mean, there's there, there are terrible con- complications that can and have been documented to happen. So I think you make a good point that having a clinician there, a professional there, can be very reassuring and can actually make the event more successful, if you'll excuse the term. Right. And at the same time, um, I think patients have a lot of reassurance. There's less complication rate. Uh, and uh, and like I said, I think it's less discriminatory. It allows access to, to those who need it. So I think you've hit on something very real. Absolutely. Um, just We just have a few minutes left, Dr. Green, but I'm just curious that um, would you agree that if palliative palliative care was more widely available that we wouldn't need assisted dying? Actually, we've actually got data that proves that's not true. Let me start by saying palliative care is imperative. I am a strong supporter of it. I think we can always do better, and we need better access to palliative care all over the place. Absolutely, bar none. Having said that, national Canadian data will show you that anyone who's received an assisted death in our country, 83% of them were already receiving palliative care at the time of their death. And of those who were not, 88% of them had access to palliative care. So it's not a failure of palliative care that people access made. It's not for lack of access to palliative care that people are accessing made. We see that in, in multiple jurisdictions, and certainly our data is showing that very, very clearly. Mm-hmm. Of course, we can do better with palliative care, but it's not the reason that people are asking for an assisted death. Right. Dr. Green, uh, I hate to put you into a box, but we just have two minutes left, and I'm just wondering, what would you like our listeners to take away from this interview? Well, thanks for asking. Um, I, would like to, I would like your listeners to take away that, that talking about uh, death and dying, preparing for end of life, is not just important for end of life, but it's an important way to increase the quality of the life you live now. You will be less anxious about what will happen at end of life if you've thought about it already. So that's the number one message, I would say. I would say also that assisted dying uh, is and has been proven to be, in many jurisdictions, a safe, reasonable option at end of life. It's a tool for end of life care. It's not the only one. A minority of people will choose it. But having the possibility is empowering to people. Just having the option is very, very powerful. So I would say please stay open-minded to the, to the concept. Thank you, Dr. Green, for being with us tonight and talk with Francesca. It's really um, very interesting. And um, listeners, if you missed part of the show, you can go on, go on over to my iTunes page, um, which will be posted uh, shortly. So um, this is very, very important information. So again, Dr. Green, thanks so much for joining us tonight. 
Thanks for the opportunity to be here. Okay. We've got to wrap things up and say good night. I hope you enjoyed the show. And um, see you next week, same time, same place. Yeah.